Welcome back to Dairy Public Radio. Reporting from the basement of the Dairy Civic Center, this is CM Alexander with the news. Gumshoes, private eyes, and sleuths rejoice as we celebrate DetectCon here at the Dairy Civic Center. Sign up for informative panels such as Murder Scene Puns, One More Thing, A Guide to Questions, and The Sadder the Office, The Better the Dick. You're listening to Dairy Public Radio. This is Dairy Public Radio. Welcome back to Dairy Public Radio, a bi-weekly Stephen King book club podcast. I'm one of your hosts, Joshua Kahn, alongside Benjamin Graham. Hey, Counselor Readers. And joining us via Zoom, he is a Mystery Writers of America Grandmaster and four-time winner of the Private Eye Writers of America Seamus Award. His graphic novel, Road to Perdition, became an Academy Award-winning Tom Hanks film. He has scripted the Dick Tracy comic strip, Batman, and his New York Times and USA Today bestsellers include Saving Private Ryan, American Gangster, and several CSI novels. Please welcome to the show, Max Allen Collins. Max, how are you? Well, great. I feel, you know, I'm very impressed with myself. (laughs) (laughs) I... Honestly, I was about to start applauding. <laughs> yeah, you of you've got a a solid resume, my man. Yeah, I recommend living a long time. <laughs> That's good advice. Yeah, uh, it's uh, I, I know we haven't even gotten into into our questions, but I just I want to let our uh, listeners know it's just very funny that you live like an hour away from us. Not even that. Not even that. Like forty five. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I'm in Muscatine, Iowa. Yeah. And are you in Davenport? We are. Davenport? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Davenport. Yeah. And my uh, my longtime business partner in doing indie films and various video and movie projects is Phil Dingledine, who's a well-known person in your Love part Phil. of the world. Yeah. Uh, who runs D Films over in Rock Island. Top of the line, so, D Films. I think the Quad Cities is great. I mean, it's it's, a, it's an incredible area and much underrated. I have to say, it in preparing for this interview, I was going through your your oeuvre and seeing the frequency of the place I live mentioned uh, is <laughs> is a little surreal because, of course, Road to Perdition is an amazing comic book. If you haven't read Road to Perdition, mm. y'all, you need to. And starts out in Rock Island and plays uh, into the story. Mm-hmm. And also, your character you created for DC, Wild Wama. Dog, uh, yeah. canonically from the Quad Cities. Are you serious? He is yeah. uh, the Quad Cities vigilante crime fighter. That's news to me. Yeah. That's well, let, me, a- let me tell you something, guys. <laughs> what, the, the really, The really disconcerting thing about living in an area a long time and writing about the area a lot of time, putting it in, in your, in your stuff is I've had this kind of conversation so many times. <laughs> somebody comes to me and says, oh, I love your books. I love your, I love your stuff. And I'm like, well, God, that's wonderful. That's great. What do you like about it? Well, they're all set in where I live. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's an added. What about the stories? <laughs> oh, I knew that antique shop. I used to go by there. <laughs> to school. Oh, I love that, that they name dropped Whitey's. Yeah, and that, that is absolutely <laughs> the, the kind of compliment I get 
in this area <laughs> is is uh yeah i i've been there. writing about places <laughs> no, it's just it is neat to see as someone from the area that in a story that is also just beautifully written fantastic mm-hmm. All right, uh, Max, let's, man, let's dive in. We got so much to talk to you about. Uh, let's kick things off. It's the first question we always ask. What was your introduction to Stephen King? My introduction to Stephen King, notice how I repeat the question. <laughs> You're a seasoned vet. I'm, I've done this. Yeah. Done this <laughs> my my wife's sister is named Cindy. And we all, I mean, my wife and I, I won't say we raised her, but we were with her a lot from her birth on. And so when she was maybe 15 or 16, we were at their mom's house. And, uh, of course, I, you know, when you're around a kid from birth, you never think of them as at the right age. Yeah. (laughs) No, he's just a kid. And I was waiting while they were doing whatever. And there was this book on the coffee table, Carrie. And it was, uh, and this is before the movie. Wow. When it was so pretty new Carrie. Yeah. Yeah. And it was just a paperback. And I'm like, no, let me see what my, uh, what this little girl is reading. (laughs) (laughs) I started reading this book and it was amazing. And it was great. And, uh, and, and that probably remains my favorite Stephen King book. Wow. Nice. Uh, Even though, even though it's not, I mean, he's done epic things like the stand and so on. Mm. Uh, and, uh, and it is, an amazing piece of work, but uh, just just the shock of that my <laughs> 15, 16 year old sister in law is reading this stuff about the shower and all that stuff. Yeah, and then when I saw the movie, um, and I got to skip a little bit of a step because my friend Terry Beatty, who was from this area, he doesn't live here now. He was the artist on Wild Dog. Mm-hmm. He he it was the artist on Ms. Tree. And we did a thing called Johnny Dynamite together. So he's a good, good pal of mine. And we we were huge Brian De Palma fans pre-Carrie. Anytime we could get to Family of the Paradise, we would drive 50, 60, 80 miles to see. Because this was before. I mean, literally, this is, what, 74 or something like that. So there's there's no home video. Mm-hmm. And so we would we would go to see that. And, uh, and, and we had seen Sisters and so on. And then, and then suddenly, the like probably what was it his third movie, something like that, mm-hmm. is Carrie, <laughs> which you know I resonated with quite a bit, and that it's still, and that still is, in my opinion, one of the best Stephen King movies. Oh, it, oh, absolutely. The story's timeless. It's so tightly written. It's sissy such a, space. Sissy space is so eerie. Oh gosh, <laughs> amazing. <laughs> yeah, it it actually almost has, which is unusual for him. It's almost a short story structure. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, it, it's, it, it, you know, he could have done it as a novella. Mm. Although I've got a feeling he probably spills a novella on his way to the kitchen. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> but he, no, uh, and, and the other thing I want to say about Stephen King, his importance is undeniable. I, you know, I run into this with my defense of Mickey Spillane a lot of times where people don't necessarily like Mickey's work. And I say, Yes, but at the point he came into uh, popularity, paperbacks were were nothing. Mm-hmm. And his first paperback reprint came out and sold hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of thousands the first weekend. And it all changed 
the whole paperback revolution happened and the way you write about private eyes changed suddenly heroes could be anti-heroes and just mm -hmm. kill a bad guy if they were in a bad <laughs> mood and sex and all this stuff it all came from this one writer and i will say to people you cannot like his writing but you cannot deny his importance mm, absolutely and here is the stephen king parallel there didn't used to be a horror section in the bookstore. <laughs> when when you write books that require the bookstores to put in a new section to accommodate <laughs> your books and the imitators of your books, you seem to be doing something right in the storytelling vein. <laughs> Absolutely. So that's my my Stephen King pitch. With all that, do you have a, a Stephen King moment that when you think of his stuff, it's this scene from this book or the scene from this movie that always jumps to your head? Well, I, I don't think you can. <laughs> I don't think you can beat the uh, beat the prom. Oh, yeah, the black prom is amazing. Yeah. And uh, and then I, I found and this is years later, but uh, I really think that the clown, <laughs> the clown and the cutter is. <laughs> <laughs> absolutely pretty good too yeah, yeah I, I i admire his storytelling i think probably my favorite story by him in recent years and at the time it came out i kind of resented him <laughs> uh, seriously i had done a book uh called ask not which is one of my nathan heller books and it was about the kennedy assassination mm. ah. and i thought well i'm gonna get a lot of attention <laughs> you know it was kind of the i think it was the anniversary of the assassination then he brought that wonderful book out Eleven Twenty Two Sixty Three. yeah yeah and i think they made a fantastic miniseries mm -hmm. out of it the thing about king is even if th th there's the storytelling is so good mm -hmm. that even even if maybe it's not his best work maybe he wrote it a little fast i'm not saying <laughs> he did but maybe he wrote a little fast the story always is something that a good filmmaker can run with mm -hmm. because the the heart of it is he, he he's that guy sitting around the campfire spinning mm -hmm. that yarn and i think he's our charles dickens i really do that's what i say on the podcast all the time mm -hmm. is so many of his books feel like you are sitting down with the the old guy sitting at an old branded gas station in the, in the sticks. <laughs> yeah. And he's oh, just no, telling he's you guy, a story. He's the guy. He, he's the caveman. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> he's the caveman sitting around the, the fire. Yeah. Absolutely. And all the women are sitting there and all the men are getting out to go hunter gather and all that stuff. And <laughs> come on, come on, Steve. Uh, okay. And then women, no, 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 no. He's telling the story. Let him finish the story. <laughs> He's telling a story so he doesn't have, he's like me. <laughs> he tells lies, elaborate lies, so he doesn't get it, have to get a real job. Oh, teach me. <laughs> teach right. me, please. The last job I had, real job I had, was stacking groceries. What year was I, that? That would have been 66, 67. <laughs> Good Lord. No, I did teach, I did teach mm -hmm. for five years, but I, uh, I don't. I got, I got in trouble saying this once. I got <laughs> I got in trouble saying this more than once. Uh, but I kind of didn't consider it a real job because my heart wasn't in it. I was sure. really kind of good at it because, as you can tell, I'm not shy. <laughs> <laughs> so I could go in and fill an hour, mm -hmm. no problem. But I have such respect for teachers that the teachers who were, it is their calling. 
Mm -hmm. I knew it was not my calling. My calling was to tell stories, to tell elaborate lies. Uh, now, I have done some uh, right in your neck of the woods, gentlemen. I, for 25 years, I taught at the Augustana Summer mm. uh, Writer nice. Conference. Nice, yeah. And, but that was a week, and I could share you know, the stuff that I've learned. I don't believe you can teach writing fiction, but I think you can share strategies uh, and you can, and so there's some mechanical things you can do, but, uh, King is somebody who demonstrates that, uh, you gotta be a born storyteller. Absolutely. So where did the, the passion for writing and specifically the love of mystery evolve from? Well, my, it was my mother's fault entirely. <laughs> she read to me, God bless her, read to me every night before I went to bed. And I, I also was fascinated with comic books before I could could read. The first thing I ever wrote with my little pencil was titled, and I know what the title is because my mother wrote it down because I couldn't write yet. <laughs> I couldn't read. I couldn't write. But my first, the first thing I did was the two zombie Superman versus each other. <laughs> God, that's, that's such a good story. title. And, 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 and if you saw that's the dialogue, it was just scribbles, you know, because I couldn't. Couldn't write yet. I would have been four, maybe, and I was. That was from George Reeves on TV. Uh, but uh, she read to me Tarzan, Edgar Rice Burroughs, the real deal, real Edgar mm -hmm. Rice Burroughs, mm -hmm. incredible writer. Uh, you know, I mean, I, I I would be shocked if Stephen King didn't grow up to some degree on Edgar Rice Burroughs. It's uh, John Carter of Mars, correct? Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Edgar Rice Burroughs. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. John Carter of Mars. Which is the other, yeah, the other great thing, although I liked Carson of Venus quite a bit, uh, which was the, the other science fiction thing he did. But oh. Burroughs was an amazing writer. The, the, the technique he had that I still use that I think is just, you know, absolutely the keys to the kingdom is, is to follow two story threads. And you have a chapter that leads up to the cliffhanger. Then you go to the other story thread mm -hmm. and, you, and make them wait. <laughs> all the way through that but at the end of that chapter you drop a cliffhanger too so you're just pulled through the story pulled through the story pulled through the story mm -hmm. i loved comics so my my mom and she would absolutely be called upon by social services <laughs> anybody knew but they didn't have that in those days yeah. I mean, <laughs> this is the time when frederick wortham was writing seduction of the innocent and all the anti-comic book stuff was mm -hmm. happening. EC Comics got blotted oh. out, uh, you know. And one of my first memories is that story all through the house where Santa Claus is, is a mad serial killer. Oh, <laughs> the kid letting him in at the end? What? Is so scary. It obviously didn't have any effect on me at all. <laughs> <laughs> and well, that's one of my earliest memories, literally. So my, my mom said to me, well, you you kind of like Sherlock Holmes, don't you? Yeah, I did like Sherlock Holmes. I was probably six, seven years old. And uh, she said, well, when I was in San Diego, while your dad was in the service, I, I followed Dick Tracy in the, in, the comics, in the comic pages. And I think you'd really like Dick Tracy. So I started buying the Dick Tracy comic book. And let me tell you, and they were that Chester Gould stuff, that was so violent. So incredible. really, oh, 
bullets flying through heads and twirling. What? Yeah. Before oh, the yeah. comics oh, yeah. code existed, violent. comics were nuts. Comics were lawless. <laughs> it was. It was there. And this is something that I think that Stephen King would would get would get it would get this. They were putting the they were putting the Tracy comics, you know, in comic book form, and then they'd stop it at a cliffhanger. I learned something about power of storytelling from that. And then so uh, the next one I read was that little book that was published that my aunt bought me. I had a lot of relatives try to corrupt me (laughs) with a good amount of success. And this was Dick Tracy meets the brow. I feel like I learned so much from Chet in those stories about storytelling, Mm -hmm. you know, the the power of tragic melodrama, Mm. you know, care about people and and sometimes lose them. Not always. Mm Mm-hmm. Just sometimes. There's something so powerful about the the first thing as a kid where you discover, like, the characters I am growing to love can be in real danger. Yeah. Like, that, that is such a, a terrifying thing to learn <laughs> as a child, and it kind of sticks with you. It was the horse from NeverEnding Story for me. <laughs> oh, That's no. what taught me about characters I love dying. <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, never kill a pet, too. <laughs> oh, Also that. T- tell that to Stephen King. <laughs> Uh, actually, Max, so you, you've written so many different mysteries, and, and I feel like the the quality of a mystery novel is hi- a lot about the mystery, too. How, Having written so many mystery novels, how do you keep discovering a fresh mystery? How do you keep mysteries interesting for you? Well, I, I think, I, I, for me, I have to start at the ending. Mm-hmm. And that is actually a... That's a spoiling technique, although I didn't know that. It's something I kind of stumbled onto. What happened in a very early book of mine, the second book I wrote, it wasn't the second book that got published. It got published probably in the fourth or fifth lineup of, of my stuff. Mm. But it's a book called No Cure for Death. And I started out with this philosophy. Well, if I don't know what's going to happen next, and if I don't know who did it in the mystery, the reader won't. Which mm. sounds kind of logical. <laughs> and then I get to the end of the book and I spend two long exposition <laughs> little chapters where I figured out a way for somebody to be the bad, you know. Mm. And that's when I said, no, no, that's not how you do it. You need to know who did it and and, and why. And uh, and I do think that um, I do think a mystery, the best mysteries are about something. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. They're they're about character. It, it could be as simple as like in the Neural Wolf books by Rex Stout. There, a lot of times they're not about anything except the relationship between Neural Wolf and and Archie Goodwin. But it's such an exquisitely portrayed, humorous, touching relationship that you like to watch just what impact the story has on them. Mm. Then there are other ones where you're making, you're, you're really making point, but, but I'm not a writer who, who writes a novel to tell you what I think. I write a novel to find out what I think. Oh, that's if, fascinating. If, if I want to write, if I want to tell you what I think, I'll write an essay. I'll write a, I'll write my blog. Right. But I want to set something up and explore and explore things. You know, so so that's that's kind of how I, and I've run into things lately. Like I have a book out right now called The Big Bundle, that's from Hard Case Crime. You see how I worked out? I, oh, yeah. I'm actually I'm currently reading that. Thank you so much. Well, I'm about to spoil some of it. For oh you. God! <laughs> uh, a lot. 
But you know, when I when I picked this crime out, because those books are all about a true crime that mm. I set up as a private eye story, and there it's a kidnapping, and the kid who's kidnapped, who's really not a character in the book, is the same age as my grandson, mm. eight years old. That was a resonance that I was. I mean, I really had to think about whether I, I wanted to go there, mm -hmm. because yeah. uh, that tragedy would um, that hit a little bit too close to home. On the other hand, it sure did engage me, and if I'm engaged, there's a pretty good chance the reader's going to be engaged. And if I'm not engaged, <laughs> there's no chance the reader's going to be. I mean, if we're going to be a little spoilery about that book. I do uh, really appreciate that uh, Nathan Heller, like very early on, he's like, uh, I don't know, guys, like, <laughs> do, does any of this sound right to you? Like he's he, but he is very much a like, I'll let people think what they want to think. I know what's happening. I have the idea. But I like that you have that it, from the very beginning. Right. You get that like he sees through all of this stuff. But he is emotionally intelligent enough to be like that. Belo that information belongs to me right now. Well, I'm very proud of Nathan Heller as a character. Mm -hmm. the The first book was called True Detective. Uh, nothing to do with the TV show. <laughs> they stole that from me, much as they, <laughs> much as Barry was stolen from Quarry. I'm not bitter. <laughs> Heller is a guy who, at the beginning of the series, it, you know, is is in an office above a blind pig, which is a speakeasy, and he's sleeping on a Murphy bed, right? And by the time you get to where you are mm -hmm. in the series, he's got a coast-to-coast -coast detective agency. Yeah, talking about his agencies and opening a third agency. And he, he's yeah. had articles about him in mm -hmm. Life magazine. And so it's been very gradual. Uh, and, and so I always age him with times. Uh, as it because you have to make that choice when you do a serious character, mm -hmm. are they going to be just that's just who they are and they're always going to be there? They're vaguely in their 30s, vaguely in their 40s, <laughs> or are you going to say, Okay, this is a real life? Now, when I was starting this, I started the book in '81 and it was published in '83. Uh, mystery writers weren't doing that much in terms of uh, you know, they didn't a private eyes never got married, hardly ever. Mm -hmm. Uh, they didn't have kids. They and and I I I had this notion that I wanted to do something that was at once genre that mm -hmm. that looked at and I kind of hate the word tropes, but that that did recognize the cliches and the tropes. Mm -hmm. But I also wanted to look at well how what were there were real private eyes in that era, mm -hmm. much more than there are and fairly traditional private eyes. Let's examine how those tropes came to be, and let's have him also not be, as much as I love Philip Marlowe, Philip mm -hmm. Marlowe had the rules that Chandler gave him, which was like he would never despoil a virgin, he would never take a bribe. Well, I, I actually I think there were seven or eight of these rules. I had them on my desk, and I checked them off as I'm... As I'm <laughs> I love as that. I'm That's amazing. I really, really did. Because I wanted him to be more real than that. Yeah. So when, when Frank Nitti, Al Capone's successor, calls him in and says, you're getting too close to this. Quit the case. Here's a hundred bucks. Hella goes, hmm. okay. And he goes out and invites himself in a suit. <laughs> <laughs> That's now, amazing. Now I pull him back into the case. I pull him back into the case. Yeah. 
But but he basically says, you know, when Frank Nitty says quit the case and you live in Chicago, you're going to be in dead in a ditch. Yeah. If yep. you don't quit the case. Mm-hmm. But oh no, these private eyes, they're noble in their nights. That's total bullshit. <laughs> <laughs> That's and, so and, great. Uh, yeah. And that to some degree that comes from Mike Hammer. He was the first private eye who acted out of emotion. Mm-hmm. He his he hardly ever has a client. Somebody has killed his friend. Somebody has done something bad to a friend of his, uh, and he's he's going to serve up r- rough justice. And when it gets to the end of the story, he's liable to just pull his gun and shoot the guy. <laughs> that had not been done. That had not been done. And and that again, that goes up to my childhood. I was reading Spillane at twelve. Mm. So um, I had to lie about my age to, to buy those books. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I, I don't know if I have any respect for anybody who didn't lie about their age to buy a book. <laughs> <laughs> so um, I wanted to go back to uh, when you're telling a serialized story, following a character for years and years, there's, there's a pitfall. So many things that I love fall into that it becomes repetitive. They don't give the characters the growth that you you are mentioning. And in the sake of continuing to tell the story forever, I wanted to ask uh, how you feel about giving your characters an ending in in your serialized storytelling. When when do you say this is, when when do you give it the throw Sherlock off the waterfall uh, (laughs) book? I'm going to, answer that question but I, i'm gonna lead up to it with 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 heller in particular there's two reasons why i don't think i fall into the repetitive trap mm-hmm. one is i'm aging him as the years yep. go by helps yeah and then the other thing is that he's reacting to the times mm-hmm. for example there's a the third book was called the million dollar wound heller goes to war he's he's a marine is in guadalcanal and he actually comes home in a section eight mm. and he's very messed up by the war. Okay. So, so one of the things you do, let's say I'm going to do a Heller short story and I look at the, the year of the crime I'm going to do. It's like before or after the war. <laughs> Those are very he's, different characters. He's, yeah. a different, he's a different character. And then he gets, then as he gets wealthy and he gets a little, you know, and he's famous, he's the private eye to the stars. And then, and they have, he has a, a woman that he falls in love with, um, and uh, he, has, he has a son. So all of these things give him colors that I don't think I don't think there's another private eye like him in the history of private eye fiction. There's some that have wives. And I mean, that's changed a little bit in recent years. But, but the whole thing about Heller was that when I – I trained to be a private eye writer, okay? Mm-hmm. I – specifically said i'm going to do i'm going to i'm going to join that list that has dashiell hammett raymond chandler and mickey spillane and rex stout i'm going to get on that friggin list succeeded and he did (laughs) but about the time that i was graduating from the university of iowa writers workshop he dropped Mm -hmm. that name um private eye was dead in in the marketplace and was really played out um, and it had been played out before when Mickey created my camera, the private eye had become very much a parody thing on the radio. Mm. The Sam Spade on the radio was not the Sam Spade of the Maltese Falcon. Ah, it, was yeah. jokey, it was jokey. And, and so, 
you know, I, I, I wanted to do him, I wanted to do him more, uh, you know, more real. And I thought, well, what, I, well, it really came from the Maltese Falcon. Let me, let me back mm -hmm. that up. And I've told this story a lot and I apologize if you've heard it, but I was teaching at the university at uh, Muscatine community college and to stay sane, I, I did a, uh, I did a course on mystery fiction. Totally for me, not not for me. <laughs> and so I, looking at the Maltese Falcon, which is the maybe the great American novel, period. It's certainly the great American uh, tough mystery. And I just was, you know, looking at the Indicia page, and as comic book people will know what Indicia page is, whereas actual human beings don't. <laughs> uh, but the Indicia page said uh, copyright nineteen twenty nine. And I went, oh, 1929, that's the St. Valentine's Day Massacre. Oh, that means uh, that means Sam Spade and Al Capone were contemporaries. Hmm. That's the light bulb moment. Cool. Where, where I go, okay, I can have Philip Marlowe, instead of Philip Marlowe meeting an Al Capone type, Al Capone can meet a Philip Marlowe type. So I that's spun awesome. it. Nice. And, and then the next thing was, well, if I'm going to be – in history, history is littered with with unsolved mysteries and improperly reason, controversially solved mysteries. Mm -hmm. So after I did three books about Chicago and the outfit and Frank Nitti, I, I you know all I did Dillinger and I did that stuff too. Then I was like, okay, let's do something like let's do like Lindbergh, which is oh. and and so so then I start doing these famous cases and sometimes they're mysteries, sometimes they're not. Crimes. Sometimes it's the I do the Roswell incident in a book called Magic Man. Uh, I do uh, uh, I do the Black Dahlia in Angel in Black. Another one that's not a that's not really a a crime is Amelia Earhart. We find out mm. what happened to Amelia cool. Earhart, and you got to be crafty to figure out how to sure. do that. <laughs> a private eye story. But that's the other reason why the books aren't alike. Because what does Amelia Earhart have in common? with the Roswell incident, except aircraft. <laughs> okay. Otherwise, you're, and so, so that means the trappings are different. Mm -hmm. When I read Rick Stout, as much as I love Rick Stout, it's all one story. Yep. <laughs> it's all once, it's all his businessmen. And I mean, it, he's such a delightful writer, I don't care. But I don't want to do that. I mean, Robert B. Parker was uh, very influential and very important. But he just kept writing the same book over and over and over and over and over, and over again. Yeah. Now Stephen King, while he has something, I mean, you could you could say Steve, let's mm, not do any more haunted car stories. <laughs> oh, but those are my <laughs> favorites. Generally, generally speaking, he does not do the same story twice. Yeah. yeah. Okay. And he's 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 digging into his brain and his psyche, and the things that are around him, because he's a combination of you know, the crazy abstract mm -hmm. and the very concrete. And he sells the abstract through through the concrete. I, I think this the parallel with me is a little different because what I try to do is, particularly outside of Heller, um, I like to do a story where the story itself is crazy. It's a melodrama, but the surface is real. So so you go into that, so if if the people are, you know, I mean, Nate Heller farts, for example. <laughs> <laughs> Un I, uncommon. 
for narrative characters. You know, I'll tell you, it was uncommon in the early 80s when I was doing it. <laughs> sure. I do think it's changed a little bit. Uh, I do think people have, have, I don't think it was my influence because I don't think <laughs> those guys read me. But uh, I, I do think times changed a little bit, mm-hmm. more than a little bit. And uh, and I think, that's, I think that's good for the genre. I mean, the genre has to... Has has to breathe has to has to seem real, because mm-hmm. Sam Spade and Philip Marlowe there were guys like that, but there aren't yeah. now. So when you see some of these these writers who who have big reputations that are still just kind of doing Philip Marlowe, I kind yeah. I go like well, guys, I mean you know, times have moved on. Now I want to ask you about uh, you mentioned your hard case crime novels earlier. Yeah, uh, we've read a few hard case crime novels because of Stephen King's books. Uh, and you have I'm several so of your. Him my you have you have several. Book, he says, "Well, God, look look how Collins is selling." Look how... <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm gonna. I'm gonna I, you tell my books out. if we ever get to interview him, we'll tell him to stay in his lane. Yeah. <laughs> uh, God bless him. Actually, God bless him. He he he's kept that that line alive. Can you tell us how that relationship with hard case crime happened? Well, I think that I honestly, he, he's a mystery fan. He, mm-hmm. he and I have share uh, a mentor, which is mm. which is Don Lee Westlake, who wrote as Richard Stark. And uh, he, a name we know, uh, a name we know, yeah. Richard Stark was, I mean, that's one of one of his favorite writers, mm. and uh, you know, so that that's that's a commonality. So the idea that he is somebody that does appreciate that kind of that kind of story, and then. I don't really know the inside story, but my guess is he probably got in touch with. No, the no I mean, I mean, your how, how did you get involved with hard case oh, crime? Oh, that, that's easy. <laughs> oh, I don't need you to tell me about him. Yeah, Who cares about yeah, Stephen but, King? We're not here to talk about him. Yeah. <laughs> but I do think it's interesting. because like, I, I think oddly, I think he has a freedom. Mm, you would think mm. he could write anything he wanted. Mm-hmm. But I think he has a freedom to say I don't have to talk to anybody. I, I, <laughs> all I have to do is is tell our guy I've got another book, and he'll go, "Yeah, yeah." <laughs> the haunted shoe, perfect. sure. You know, I, 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 he, but he gets to do, and he doesn't have to do. He doesn't have to do horror. Mm-hmm. He, he he can do he can do crime. He can do tough crime, and he can break a lot of rules that he feels like breaking. So I I think that's part of it for me. It was that. Um, they contacted me, and they being basically Charles Ardai, said, we're starting this line, this retro line. We're going to do these covers that are harken back to the covers from the 50s and 60s, and we'd like to uh, reprint your book, Blood Money. We're doing, uh, and he told me what the other books were, and they were, I think, I don't, I don't remember what they were, but they were by basically dead authors, okay? Mm-hmm. And I said, um, well, Blood Money is the second book, I, why don't you take the first book and the second book, and they're really they they're really intertwined. And just publish one book. It's one book, and you pay me the same advance. You get a, give you a book free, mm-hmm. and, and it's oh okay, let's do that. So he did that. Then they they actually put one of the worst covers on it. The, <laughs> oh no! <laughs> oh no! That was a disappointment. And uh, of course, I don't keep quiet about stuff like that. So. <laughs> why should you? It's your work, right? Yeah. He called me and I think he just said, well, you know, he wanted to do some, another reprint because I have mm-hmm. a pretty big backlist. And I said, uh, 
I would rather write a new book mm -hmm. for you. Nice. Uh, pay me the same amount you would for a reprint. And that's the Stephen King thing. I can go there and do what I want to do. Mm -hmm. uh, and and so it came about that uh, I'd, I'd done the Quarry series in the mid-70s, and it had a cult following. And I wanted to do one last, and you talked about this, fi finishing the series. Mm -hmm. I wanted I wanted to finish the series off, so I, so I yeah. pitched the last Quarry. And I said, but I have one proviso i you you yourself and he wrote some books for himself you got robert mcginnis for your cover i want robert <laughs> nice okay and so he said done and so i i got right and it's, it's on the wall over here nice. uh robert mcginnis did the cover for the last quarry i went about my business and then shockingly uh the book got noticed uh, Entertainment Weekly, who were a big deal at that time, mm -hmm. gave me a rave review and compared me to Chandler, Amazing. and wow. um, and then they sold it sold fairly well. So I was at a BoucherCon, the big mystery convention, and in I think in a food line waiting to <laughs> to get food with with Charles. And Charles turned to me and said, "It's really too bad that you ended the series." And I said, um, "Yeah, I did write the last quarry. How would you like to publish the first quarry?" <laughs> so, so i wrote a book about his first his first gig nice and uh and then we've done something like a dozen since awesome and they terrific. fill in the blank so if i had been writing them all these years this is all the books i would have written that's so cool and, 80s. and then i did, did this book that was just nominated for the edgar and lost but it got nominated getting nominated oh, counts yeah Corey's blood and I decided, this gets right back to your question. I decided I've kind of aged, I've, I've kind of aged Corey like I've aged Eller. Mm -hmm. I'm going to make him 70 years old in this book. I'm going to basically make him my age. Oh, that's awesome. And, nice. And so uh, a woman shows up at the house. Now I'll give you the big spoiler. It's his, it, he, it's his daughter. Nice. And he's the daughter of some some woman that he banged in one of the earlier books. <laughs> <laughs> and um, and so uh, I now have and and I reveal that he's been writing these books all these years. Nice. Oh, that's great! Cool. I love that. That's and, amazing. And, and also, I also I reveal that he's a totally unreliable narrator. <laughs> <laughs> if paying attention, you'd already know. That's hilarious. Uh, so 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 uh, that was designed to be the last book, and. It was I, I saw it basically as a coda because I'd already done the last quarry. That really was <laughs> intended to be the last book. Uh, I love that because that's the last of his books. That's the yeah. last <laughs> book in his <laughs> series. That's, book he wrote. that's so cool. <laughs> but, but now I have to tell you, I'm preparing to write a coda to the coda. <laughs> oh, there you go. Uh, but you know, it's some it's, it's a coda and two pair of pants. This is two pair of pants. And, and to, to Coda. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I want to shift gears to something else you write that we actually did an entire bonus show, a bonus episode of our show talking about the novelizations of movies. And you have written several novelizations of movies. How did that start? I, I made a living at it. I, I mean, basically a good share of my living at it. I was probably, uh, I'm trying to think of a modest way to say this, but I probably was the top novelization guy for 10 or 12 years. I, I mean, not, seeing how many you did. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I get that. And I was very lucky because um, I got, I got some really important things 
like Saving Private Ryan, U571, mm-hmm. Air Force One. I mean, they, they came to me, I think, maybe because they viewed me as a novelist. Mm-hmm. And But what happened was the, the beginning of the story is I did the Dick Tracy novelization. Mm-hmm. I was still, I was the, in 1990, I still was writing the Dick Tracy strip. And I had angled to get the novelization of the movie because I didn't want anybody else writing it because I had a, <laughs> proprietary, had a proprietary attitude. Yeah, it's your boy. And yeah. so, so the, the script rolls in and I thought it was terrible. It's not a good movie. Yeah. I, had seen the script, I had seen the script about five years before and thought it was terrible. And then when this haul came, I said, well, they've got, they've, they've got a different script by now. <laughs> <laughs> they couldn't be going with that script. It was the same. <laughs> oh no! So that I explained a lot. Yeah, it does. I I called my agent and said, "What do I do about this?" And he said, "And he was not experienced with novelizations at all. He's a great agent, but he never sold them before." He said, "Oh, they're not going to pay any attention. Just do whatever." You want. <laughs> and so, so I fixed it. I completely fixed it. And like, if I didn't like, if I didn't like the the death trap, I did a different death trap. <laughs> if I if I wanted if I thought there should be some more villains I did some more anyway, anyway <laughs> and and they came back to me and said we got about three chapters in try again <laughs> oh, <no. laughs> and, and by the way you have two weeks and we were packed to leave to go to Nassau on a, a, a business <laughs> work trip because I had to research a Nate Heller book in Nassau mm. so I'm right I'm typing on the plane. I'm typing in the hotel room. Oh my god! And I'm and I'm novelizing the the, mm. the screenplay, but I'm also putting in anything. I, I just said to them, "Well, you know, screenplay is 100 pages. I got to. I'm contract to deliver 300 pages. That means I got to come up with 200 pages. Say it because I'm math genius. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, I put all kinds of stuff in that wasn't in the movie. Mm-hmm. Biden Flint hard and stuff. And then the book came out really pretty good. Till we got to the end of the book, mm-hmm. and if you saw that movie, and I don't care if you did, but mm-hmm. the 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 villain called the uh, the blank mm-hmm. turns out to be Breathless Mahoney, which is was played by Madonna, and which is something I think you could have figured out in the credits. <laughs> <laughs> and they thought they had uh, in, in ba- Warren Beatty Land. They thought they had the most surprising surprise ending <laughs> in the world. <laughs> And so, okay. So then they 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 call me and say, "You can't reveal it that the blank <laughs> what? is what." So I said, "Let me." So I, it's a mystery novel. It's a mystery novel, but I can't I can't reveal who did it. That's, That's right. Insane. I know. And and then I, I kept trying to get around them. I was like, uh, you know, the, the the blank says something like at the end. I love you, the blank said breathlessly. That's so funny. So how so, does the novel end? <laughs> uh, well, it, it doesn't end. <laughs> <laughs> it ends with well, Dick Tracy three, wondered who did it. The <laughs> end. And, and so uh, at any rate, uh, we sold something like 800,000 copies. Uh, That's amazing. That's so cool. I'm the, you know, uh, uh, nobody ever wrote a mystery novel that sold to that degree. 
That had no end. <laughs> <laughs> now I that did, should be on your credits. Like that should be the little sub ahead of you. I did. I did bargain with him, and the bargain was: I said, "Okay, um, any printings that happen after the movie comes out, you restore my ending." Nice. And so, so I think it's the sixth printing, which was mostly sold That's to insane. Scholastic Book Club. So you can find it. So, so the the. Um, collectible is not the one that has no ending the collectible is the one that has the ending interesting uh so that's but that's bottom line is i sold eight hundred thousand copies of yeah. the novelization so when they fired me off dick tracy which is a whole <laughs> other story oh no uh in 1992 uh 93 i went to my agent and said i i had a best-selling novelization so go out to all the novelization editors and tell them i'm available Mm-hmm. And they and it was like crickets for a while, and then I got a, a call from my agent saying, "Good news and bad news. Good news is they want you to do the novelization of the new Clint Eastwood movie. Now Clint Eastwood's last movie had been The Unforgiven, which mm-hmm. had sold, which had you know had had so won good. every Academy Award that wasn't nailed down. <laughs> and so I, I said, "That's fabulous. Here's the bad news: they need it in eight days." Oh. oh my God! I was. This was two days before I was to leave for the San Diego Comic Con, <laughs> where where I was playing. My band, Seduction of the Innocent, was playing, and that so I, I. It was crazy. But so my wife and I, my wife Barb, who's just amazing, uh, I just burrowed. I burrowed in, and um, I just I just did it. I just, I just did it, and but there was no internet to, to check, and so I would be something like, and it was going all around the wor- the country to different political stops. So this chapter would be Cleveland, and this chapter would be I don't know Des Moines, and this chapter mm-hmm. would be Dallas, and I'd send my wife to the library to look up Dallas and give me some color. And so we did it, and the book was the the book did extremely well, and then the word got around like. This this crazy sob wrote this book. In what was it, what was that book? In the line of fire. In the line of fire. And and the the other thing that was remarkable about the, I uh, what is that guy's name? Gary. Um, I can't think of it. But he's a, he's a big actor. Gary Sinise. Uh, no, it, but it, it's somebody on that level. Gary Oldman. Sure. No, no, stop <laughs> I'm gonna yeah. name all the Gary. Gary from SpongeBob. Yeah. Uh, anyway. <laughs> yeah. But he 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 read it, and we listened to it in the car. And as the book goes along, the level of obscenity just keeps <laughs> and building and building because the level and the character was like kind of kind of the lead character was getting more and more frayed and which was good. It was good characterization, mm. but it was basically just me having a nervous breakdown on the page. <laughs> and um, and 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 so then I began to get the the novelizations, and I was very lucky. Because most of them were pretty cool, and if, if they weren't like, you know, Academy Award winning things, it'd be like I did all I did three Mummy novels, the first, and those were great to do. My favorite those one. I'm great. so. Oh my god, that, I'm so excited that when I saw the Mummy on your credits, I don't know, it made me so happy. I love <laughs> oh, that movie so much. Well, they 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 were a lot of fun to do. I did, and I I did Scorpion King, which mm-hmm. was the spinoff. Uh, I did Waterworld. Yeah, hold on. Let's not. Let's just pump Fuck, the brakes at so Waterworld. Cool. <laughs> um, uh, I just okay. What? 
what is it like? Like, what are the, is the, the different experience doing something like The Mummy or Waterworld? And then do you do like did, you know, uh, American Gangster and and Saving Private yeah. Ryan, the things that are in your wheelhouse versus these insane movies? Like, is that? Well, the thing the thing you have to do for me, when I say you, I only mean you. <laughs> uh, I, I always had to have a window into the material. Mm-hmm. So when I looked at The Mummy, I said, this is two things. This is Indiana Jones mm-hmm. and uh, and Universal Horror. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I like Indiana Jones and I like Universal Horror. Mm-hmm. Let's have a good time, and that's just what I did. And then so, and when I read the Scorpion King, I went, "Whoa, this is a piece of shit." What? <laughs> <laughs> uh, I thought about Edgar Rice Burroughs. Mm. I said, this could be an Edgar Rice Burroughs mm-hmm. novel. Mm. In a major so way. I'll write, my, I'll write my Edgar Rice Burroughs novel. Give it now, kind of a Conan the, flair. The thing, there you the go. Thing the, most re- the thing I'm proudest of, and I think that I had for a while, I had kind of a reputation for this novel, but I, I got I got a script. I don't know what it was. And I told, and my agent called me and said, what do you think? I said, this this blows. I don't want to do it. <laughs> so I got another one, and I didn't. it was something else. And I said, I don't want to do this one. I'm tired of doing these. Terrible ones. Get me something good. <laughs> the third one came in, and it was uh, what is it called? Dead. It's it's the tunnel movie. You know the tunnel movie with Sylvester Stallone. Um, oh, uh, it's a disaster I, movie. I have no idea. I don't think ways. I've seen it. <laughs> I, I, I've not a huge mm-hmm. Stallone head. But at any rate, this 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 comes in. And I didn't like it at all. And I told my agent, I said, this, this, is, uh, this is nonsense. And he said, and I said, I can turn this down, right? He said, yeah, you can turn it down. That's the third one in a row. You're never going to get offered one again. <laughs> so I said, well, I, I can see some merit in it. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, so I got this idea that, and I didn't ask permission, which was really dangerous. But I thought, <laughs> okay, it's a disaster movie. I'm going to pretend that I'm doing a documentary and I'm interviewing the survivors and every survivor. So I've got six survivors set up who are going to alternate chapters and then I can be different places. I can see different things and I'm not going to do this alone. I'm going to pretend that maybe somebody's picked this up and has not watched, seen the movie yet. I'm not going to have him be a a point of of view character. character. That's fascinating. Wild. This is all first person. This is all first person. You you wrote a novelization that takes place just in the universe. Yeah. And that's so cool. At Max, if we ever do a bonus show where we cover one of your novelizations of a movie, will you come back and sure. talk to us about it? Sweet. Absolutely. <laughs> ben, I mean, we have a show. And, and the, one I really, <laughs> the one I really loved doing, which actually was not as good a script as it should have been because it was by William Goldman, who mm. was a genius. But I think that was a paycheck. Mm-hmm. script <laughs> he did the script of maverick and mm. i grew up maverick was my favorite tv show as a kid james garner and jack kelly i loved that show i loved that show and i uh, when i got that i was delighted and then the move then the the script wasn't quite anything wonderful it wasn't terrible mm-hmm. and so again i said i'm going to do this in the first person because maverick's in every scene and they used to do a voiceover in a lot of the episodes. Mm. So, and then I, 
Then, then I went through referencing every episode I could reference. <laughs> total fanboy, and and just absolutely having. And then, then I took the theme song, and I took phrases out of the theme song, and I planted the <laughs> That's whole theme insane. song in in the in the novel. Because see, if I had a window into the material, then I owned the material. The material then, you know, didn't own me. And then if it's something like American Gangster, I just write it. You know, that's straightforward yeah yeah that's your real house yeah 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 ben do you do you have any uh novelization questions before you move on i am so fascinated like we said i i pitched to josh and cm a whole podcast where we do books book report book club style discussions exclusively of movie novelizations so I, i i think this is some are very good. They're so I, I love the idea. So mostly you you've said they give you the script to write off of, obviously. How far after writing these novelizations do you actually get to see the movie? And how does well, that affect how you feel every about your now books? And the, the best you can hope for is some stills from the set. Wow. Oh. Uh, and sometimes you got that. A lot of times you got zip the most i ever got was um they had done some prep for it might have been scorpion king Mm -hmm. but they did some prep for to show places like mcdonald's to say look at you should make a happy meal out of this movie (laughs) they had about a seven minute sizzle reel sure and i got and so and that's really great because then you can see even if it's snippets you go okay that's that's the cave and you get details You won't believe what I'm about to say. (laughs) The best experience I ever had, the most incredible cooperation I ever had, was when they did the second X-Files book movie. Really? And they had a reputation for being just terrible Hmm. with writers. And I was dealing directly with the co-author. Forget his name. That's terrible. He's a big shot. Huge. (laughs) And he was always accessible by phone. He was sending me all this stuff behind the scenes and there, they were, they were keeping the script under lock and key mm-hmm. and there, and, and even, I believe even uh, the, the two lead actors only had the pages with their lines on it. Oh, wow. And I was one of, I think four people in the country that had the entire script. Yeah. That's and, crazy. And I love the X-Files. I had tried out, you know, to do original X-Files novels. And this is right at the end of the cycle, right? Where mm-hmm. that was, that movie didn't do too well, but I love doing it. I, I mean, it just was like, I, I got to be, that's a sandbox I really wanted to play in. Oh, oh absolutely. Um, we're, uh, we're running short on time. So I, sure. I want to make sure we get everything in. Um, but I, I understand that you have an additional King connection. Um, I'm very excited about it in regards okay. to your book, The Best of Crime and Detective TV. <clears throat> <laughs> the last time I had any contact directly with Stephen King, <laughs> uh, which is a disappointment to me since we're, you know, you'd think we'd be in the hard case crime locker room, you know? Yeah, best buds. You know? <laughs> and, but we're not. And But I had some contact with him when a guy named John Javna uh, invited me. He's the guy that does all the toilet humor books, which ah yes, books that you have in your toilet. Mm-hmm. Oh yep. If you know, if you don't have Moby Dick, you know you've got. <laughs> and uh, he, 
And we did, I think, a really good book called The Best of Crime and Detective TV. And we sent a questionnaire out to top mystery writers. And we, and we brought a few people in. And one of the people we brought in was Stephen King, who I believe wrote about The Fugitive, because he loved The Fugitive. Mm -hmm. And he was gracious. He did a good job. Uh, I didn't have a lot of personal contact with him, but my memory is that he was very pleasant. And then when the book came out on the cover, they said it was uh, it included these writers. And one of the writers was Steve King. <laughs> so, no. Steve <laughs> King. So, oh, so, no. so close. So I got this feeling, <laughs> and, you know, I got this feeling that he I mean, I don't know what he thinks. <laughs> but if if I come up, if, if I come up, I would imagine it's not pretty. So, Mr. King, if you're listening, Max is sorry. <laughs> please, I have nothing to do with it. Please, I have nothing to do with please it. Please be nice to him in the hard case locker room. <laughs> yeah, nobody dump any buckets of pig's blood uh, on anyone else at the hard case prom. <laughs> Well, you don't want to go to the hard case problem. There's goat's blood involved. <laughs> uh, so, Max, you uh, let's let's get to the reason that I reached out to you in the first place. We've had such a good time talking that we just, I have no time idea why you reached out to me. Uh, it's, it's because of your your new project. You're working on an Indiegogo campaign right now to we raise are. funds for a new project, Blue Christmas, which is based on your mystery story, A Wreath for Marley. Can you tell our listeners a little bit about the story and about the project? Well, it kind of comes back around uh, full circle to what we talked about earlier. It's a combination of uh, the Maltese Falcon and a Christmas Carol. The basic premise is that uh, this tough detective in Chicago in the 40s, his partner, Jake Marley, was <laughs> nice. murdered a year ago. And Marley comes, and he's our hero is not much of a hero. He's, it opens with with him being uh, delighted that he was able to bribe the guys on the draft board and, and not have mm. to go to service <laughs> during the war. So he's, he's, a, he's a stinker. Mm. And so Marley comes, Marley's ghost comes back and it's like, uh, I'm in limbo because you, you're a private detective and you haven't even bothered <laughs> to solve the problem. <laughs> and so he's visited by three ghosts, three more ghosts. That's so cool. One of them is, Bonnie Parker of Bonnie and Clyde. Oh, and, and another one is 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 a dead is a dead serviceman who was his secretary's um, brother, and that's the guilt trip guy. Mm -hmm. And then then he's the ghost of Christmas future. Now remember, this is 1941, <laughs> 42. Ghost of Christmas future is the king, who is actually Elvis Presley, and so he has so no what. Friggin' idea who all the Christmas. <laughs> That's amazing. That's so good. So so what? And, and so that's a story. I think it's one of my best stories. Uh, I was, um, I literally, you know, I got fired by by this nincompoop editor <laughs> at um, at the Tribune. Uh, he not the guy that hired me because mm -hmm. you know editors they come in and they got to get rid of the people that the last guy liked. <laughs> sure. I, I was I was I was one of those guys, and so um, we got the letter on th on Thanksgiving, uh, the day before Thanksgiving, and Christmas Eve. So we it was a little dark, 
holiday season for us. And Christmas Eve, I sat down and I wrote a 50-page short story novella, which was a wreath for Marley. Amazing. Just one sitting. Just poured out. And then I and then I I it's been published several places. It's been anthologized a couple of places. But it was an important story to me. Uh, and I did the screenplay a long time ago when when we did Mommy and it was a success. We sold it to Lifetime. Mommy is this movie I did that basically asked the question, what would would have happened if the bad seed had grown up Mm. and become a perfect mother and her little girl slowly realizes that, oh, mom's a sociopath. And Mm. Uh I I had in mind, if I could get Patty McCormick, the original bad seed, to play it, uh, it would be worth doing it. And we did. And she was great. That's amazing. So we sold it to Lifetime and we, and we, we got Blockbuster Chain in every store and so it was a hit and so we have been preparing to do blue christmas and instead we did a sequel because mm-hmm. we had to and we had investors to to and so that went on you know just went on the back back shelf well cut decades later um i had i had heart surgery in 2016 i had cancer surgery in 2017 i was um feeling like all and then i'm still playing rock and roll and that's just probably I, I need to not I need to put the the movie stuff behind me right it's, mm-hmm. so I get this call to do uh, saying we'd like you to do a golden age radio show live as a play uh, to raise money for the local art center and uh, what's what do you want it to be about we thought you'd do Dick Tracy. I'm like, <laughs> I don't promote. I don't promote things that by people that fired me. <laughs> right, as a rule, <laughs> 30, years, thirty years ago. But I said, but but I'm the I'm the 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 basically the literary executor of the Mickey Spillane estate, mm. and have literary control of my camera, one of the most famous private detectives in in fiction, and I had already done two audio books plays full length like three hours each with stacy keach as oh my, my god stacy keach full is cast. amazing we had done these in chicago that's sick. we had full cast with a lot of second city people in there they were nice really well one of them which is called encore for murder i then got a call and they wanted me to put want to know if i could put it on in owensboro kentucky where they had a a mystery convention and i said hey we can do that and they said gary sandy lives in nearby now gary sandy from wkrp in cincinnati mm-hmm. had been in my movie mommy's day and we were friends so that sealed it he was going to he was he could play my camera awesome nice so we did that there and then uh somebody heard about it in clearwater florida where there's a really fancy theater hmm. we weren't in the main stage theater we're in the uh black box theater down there but it's the ruth eckert theater and it's in clearwater florida it's a big deal we did it there. So I had that play in my pocket. Mm-hmm. And when they asked me in Muscatine, Iowa, where I live, you know, would you would you stage a Golden Age radio? I said, yeah, we'll do we'll do my camera. Well, can you get Gary Sandy? I said, Gary, <laughs> 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 you can't afford him. I mean, you <laughs> get Gary. Will you ask him? So, okay. So I called Gary and said, Gary, and I'm blah, blah, blah. Would you consider doing it? Sure. Uh, what do you need to come? Oh, nothing. 
All right. Hey, hey yeah, that, you know, I stopped the negotiation. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, he he drove up from Kentucky to do it. Amazing. I, wow. I had it set up. I had it set up so that we would be rehearsed and he would just have to come in for like the last three days. So the very first table read, I was like, this is pretty good. I mean, this is, I mean, these local <laughs> actors, yeah, these local yeah. actors. And I started asking and several of them had been in independent films in the area. And, and so I went home to my wife, Barb, and who's very tough. And I said, would you come to the next, to the first rehearsal and tell me if I'm just seeing what I want to see? <laughs> Do I just want this to be good? Mm. And she came along and she said, no, they're not bad. They're not bad. It's pretty good. And she said, and you're in your element. And I thought, mm. yeah, I, I kind of am. And so um, then I, I had already set up to be co-director. So Gary comes up and uh, he came up a little early scared the hell out of me i was <laughs> i was on stage talking to one of the actors the foley guy actually mm -hmm. and then i turned around and he was like nose to nose with me <laughs> i'm like okay and he he's this funny fun guy uh and he was so good as my camera anyway after we had one run through i i my friend phil dingledine who we talked mm -hmm. about yep. who lives in the quad cities who who shot and edited Mommy and Mommy's Day and Elliot Ness and uh, Real Time and mm -hmm. all the stuff that I've done. Mm -hmm. I said, Phil, what are you doing this weekend? So, <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't have anything. I said, well, could you round up some HD cameras? And I've got a couple of people here who could shoot also. And we could also say, I'd like to get, I'd like to grab this. I, mm -hmm. I, I don't want this to go off into the ether. So um, we shot two dress rehearsals. We shot the one performance. It was just one time. And then I sat down with this guy, Chad Bishop, who had been the Foley guy. Mm -hmm. And he works at Muscatine Community College in nearby Muscatine, Iowa, mm -hmm. where you guys li live. And uh, you don't live in Muscatine. You live in <laughs> But we edited it into a 90-minute movie program. And I'm not, you know, I wasn't sure. I still am not sure what I got because I got this incredible central performance that's very professional. But they're actors carrying scripts, but they're in, they're also in costume. And then there's a, you know, there's a screen mm -hmm. that, to set the, the, the various settings. And so it is, you know, so it was kind of a, it is what it is. And Phil and I have been working on expanding this documentary I did in 1999 called My Camera's Mickey Spillane, because this is the 75th anniversary of mm. My Camera's first appearance. And so I went to the people that were going to bring that out on, uh, you know, a Blu-ray and take it out streaming and said, can I show you this thing that mm -hmm. we did? And uh, the, the, the president of the company came back and said, it's, we, we really like this. What do you want to do with it? So let's make it a bonus feature. Mm -hmm. cool I, yeah, so that i don't Hell have yeah. to because i mean i don't i if i put it out there in the front position i'm saying this is but now i'm just saying <laughs> hey here's our documentary and now i had for the documentary interviewed gary and I, i'd interviewed gary and interviewed a couple of the actors so there was already some stuff That's from awesome. from the uh 
you know, from that. And 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 so we're we're at this is uh, I don't know when you're going to air this, but on May fifth, uh, twenty twenty three, we are showing it at Muscatine Community College. At, oh. Uh, and uh, at seven o'clock Friday night. And we also have two, three nominations for Iowa Motion Picture Awards. Wow. So that's amazing. I so think anyway, I might have to juice, come see that. Yeah. Flowing. It got the juices flowing again. And then I got working with this, with Chad at the, uh, you know, at Muscatine Community College. And he had, he had walked me into his uh, theater setup, his black box theater. And I said, Chad, this is a lot like a TV studio. <laughs> and and so I got this idea. I think I could do Blue Christmas here. So then it now we've we're, we're into blue now we're doing Blue Christmas. Nice. Hell yeah. And it's I mean it's low budget. We're talking about a $125,000 movie. Sure. M- movie with quotes. <laughs> um and we're going after a we're going after a um green light nice brand, which would give us about fifty thousand dollars and we'll use a lot of i mean they'll be it, it will be you know, I, I hope it's not amateur night at dixie i think it's going to be we we'll use a lot of the people that i used in uh encore for murder and gary i think is going to come back and play marley nice so uh, we'll see what we come up with yeah. that sounds but boring. i know that christmas i know that a christmas movie is a good thing to yeah. do. yeah mm-hmm. let make sure to let uh let ben and i know if you have auditions <laughs> yeah. We'd, uh, we'd oh, love to be in your local movie. Local actors, yeah, we're so. local actors who've been in movies. Well, I'm, I'm you know, yeah. I'm, I'm uh, not, not to put I'm you on the spot or elves. anything. Hell yeah, I'll elf it out. <laughs> I'll be the most bitch and elf yeah. you ever saw. Put me in some pointy no, ears. Do that crazy Stephen no. King if you want to That's do that. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, uh, and, well, and yeah, I, I, I have I have the Indiegogo information. Well, those that'll be in the show notes. So anybody yep. who wants to. Donate can Please jump on do. that and and add to the making of your movie. Well, that would be great, and and, and our perks are are like it's it's an almost perkless. <laughs> that's the way. That's, that's the smart way to do it. Like sometimes making an Indiegogo is more work for you than <laughs> what you get out of it. So it's, I mean, now listeners, yeah. j- just give the man the money. Yeah, give the man the money. Don't worry about Let's it. Let's make a, a Christmas movie. With a detective, man. Like, I I, I love... I, well, the thing that I love about this idea is that uh, the taking that uh, A Christmas Carol formula, is it's so familiar that it's easily connectable, but it's so open you can do whatever you want with it. Like, you just listed off your three ghosts, none of which were any three I would have guessed. Like, yeah. it's it's so cool. I so love it. Amazing. Uh before we go, I, I just want to know um, what's uh, what's next for you besides this movie. Are you working on anything new? Is there anything you want to share with our listeners? Well, I'm going in for cardioversion tomorrow to get rid of my AFib. Oh my well, goodness! <laughs> so send flowers. <laughs> yeah. So, so uh, no, uh, you know, I'm. Uh, it's it's very hard for me. I'm I'm not young. I mean, I've been doing this a long time, and and literally, the Blue Christmas Project to some degree is this is a toe in the, in the water say, okay, can I, you know, can I still do this? And, uh, then the next project would be a horror movie that I, that I promise you has nothing to do with Christmas. I also yeah. expect audition notices for that. <laughs> uh, if that's, if that's all right. Yeah. <laughs> um, we, we can be spooky. We, yeah. 
Yeah, it's uh, that that's going to happen. That's amazing. Yeah. Oh yeah. Uh where can people follow you, find out more about your books, buy some of your books? Drop all those plugs. Well, uh I love it when old dumb guys say <laughs> www. <laughs> Where else would you? <laughs> but it's it's maxallencollins.com. It's A L L A N. It's if if you know they're not gonna they, they don't get Edgar Allan Poe right. They never gonna get me right. So, but it's Max Allen A L L A N, and and I I post every week and uh, and my my wife and my son censor me because I. I always go too far, as you <laughs> have witnessed tonight. And uh, the uh, Amazon has, a, a, you know, I, I, you know, it's awful to hit the the uh, evil empire that hard. <laughs> yeah, sure. They have a lot of my stuff, and they, they brought all it. my Nate Hellers back in print. All the Hellers are in print, and uh, so wherever fine books are sold, Barnes and Noble has been very supportive, and I've seen us at, seen these books at BAM. So uh, nice. they're around. They're not hard to. They're hard, not hard to find, but you've got to want to find them. Yeah, Max. Thank you so much for taking the time to join us. It's I, been fantastic. I anticipate we will be having you back in the future to this talk very more. Fun. <laughs> this has been so much fun. Uh, that's it for this episode of Dairy Public Radio. As always, thank you for listening. Join us for our next episode. For Max Allen Collins and Benjamin Graham, I'm Joshua Kahn. Reminding you, I write to know. Hey everyone, CM Alexander here. Thank you for listening to our interview with Max. We hope you enjoyed it. Make sure you check out our show notes to support Max Indiegogo campaign, to follow him, and to find his work. That's all for now, listeners. Goodbye.